And now to introduce our speaker, Dr. Emma White. She is the current chief resident at Providence Portland Medical Center. She originally is from Seattle, but spent significant time getting her education on the East Coast, including medical school at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in New Jersey. And Dr. White plans to return there as an academic hospitalist after her time at PPMC. So thanks so much for joining us, Dr. White. Thank you. <clears throat> OK, I guess I'll get going then. So I will be presenting. So again, my name is Emma White. Hello. Good morning. Weird to not see all your faces. Um, and I will be presenting my talk entitled Dear Dr. White, an evidence-based evaluation of home remedies proposed by a MyChart message. So I guess here we go. So um, I think I remember people always putting a slide in here about disclosures, financial disclosures. So I have no financial disclosures. The only people that pay me are the lovely people at Providence. And um, let's see, I, the other thing I wanted to include is that all my chart messages in this talk are fictional and do not in any way represent or portray realistic my chart messages. So that is that. All right, so we can get started. So here we go. Um, so what a year this has been since COVID started. It's been almost 14 months, I think, since I remember first thinking about coronavirus. And since this is the year of work from home and the pandemic puppy and curbside pickup, Zoom calls for social interaction, all of us doctors learning to, <clears throat> excuse me, learning to do visits on the, the computer and, and Zoom visits and just avoid leaving the house at all costs, it feels only fitting that I would cover some home remedies for illness. So these are the topics we're going to cover today. So initially, I'm going to briefly cover cranberry juice for prevention of UTI, nasal rinses for allergic rhinitis, pickle juice for cramps, then I'm going to do a little deeper dive. Who doesn't want to do a deeper dive on duct tape for warts and prunes for constipation? And then uh, finally, we're going to talk about magic mushrooms or psilocybin for the treatment of anxiety and depression, which is a bit of a timely topic, I think, um, because of the legislation last fall. So the another disclosure I have is I actually didn't receive all of these topics via my chart. So that's one thing I wanted to be honest about. One of these actually pickle juice for cramps is, is my partner's favorite re remedy. Um, and he wanted me to tell you that in the past week, since the weather's been good and he can bike the West Hills, he has enjoyed 190 miles of biking, 12,000 feet of elevation gain, one jar of pickles and zero muscle cramps. So that's our first data folks. Um, and now we'll get into the, the published data. So our first my chart message is, Dear Dr. White, I keep getting urinary tract infections. I was thinking I might start drinking cranberry juice to prevent them. Would you recommend I do that? Thanks, I pee frequently. Sorry, these names are very corny. Okay, so before we truly get started, I promise we're getting started soon, but I had one more pandemic reference that I wanted to throw in here. So um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this video, but this is a man named Nathan who lives in Idaho. And he decided one day during the pandemic that he would skate down the street in Idaho drinking ocean spray cranberry juice and listening to Fleetwood Mac. 
and his life forever changed. So since publishing this video, um, he has made many more videos for us to enjoy. Ocean Spray even purchased a car for him. He raised enough money to buy a house. He starred in a commercial with Snoop Dogg. So for one more pandemic memory, I uh, before we get serious, I have a video to show you. So there's that. So I promise now we're really getting back to business. So cranberry juice for the prevention of urinary tract infection. So as you know, urinary tract infection is a very common problem and it's really uncomfortable for those who have them. And so we often have patients coming to us asking for some way to get rid of the discomfort. And that often leaves us sometimes prescribing antibiotics. And as we know, antibiotics are not without risk. And so cranberry juice is an interesting option. Could this you know, prevent urinary tract infection, prevent unnecessary antibiotics. So cranberry juice is proposed to work because it has a lot of water in it. So that's one of the thoughts, just dilute the bacterial load, reduce the risk of infection. The second thought is cranberry juice contains various acids, one of which called hippocuric acid is antibacterial. So that can potentially help with urinary tract infection. And then finally, there's some thought that cranberry juice can prevent bacterial adhesion. Okay, but what does the data show? So for this one, we actually have a, a Cochrane review to help us out. So this is a 2012 Cochrane review. The reviewers identified 24 studies. Not all of the studies were looking at cranberry juice. Only 11 studies actually were using cranberry juice as their cranberry source. 10 studies used cranberry tablets, two used cranberry concentrate. Of that, 13 of the studies were valuable and they compared cranberry to placebo with the endpoint of reducing UTI. So the outcomes, um, oh and I should say there wasn't a lot of heterogeneity between those studies, 5.2% interestingly. So for the outcome of urinary tract infection, the risk ratio relative risk was 0 0.86. Um, so maybe a trend toward a protective effect of cranberry juice, but it should be noted the confidence interval was 0.71 to 1.04. So this was not a statistically significant result. So no significant reduction in UTI with cranberry products. So your take home point, this is a pretty low risk intervention. So that's the other thing this Cochrane review looked at. You know, what are the risks of drinking cranberry juice all the time? Obviously for patients who have diabetes, who maybe have reflux, there's some risk of drinking cranberry juice, but otherwise it's a pretty low risk intervention. So if folks get some benefit from drinking it, maybe that's fine, but it's not necessarily supported by the data. So conflicting results there. There are of course other options for urinary tract infection uh, prevention, such as hydration. Some folks have luck with postcoital voiding. Um, some elderly patients use vaginal estrogen that can be helpful. And then there's sort of this can of worms topic, whether you can take pyridium and sort of wait it out, wait for the urinary tract infection to pass. So that's your take home point for cranberry juice. Low risk, but not necessarily supported by the data. Okay, so we're gonna move on to our next topic. 
If there are any quick questions, I could take one or else we'll move on. No questions, um, Dr. White, but just a quick comment that some appreciation for your video on TikTok. So thanks. Excellent, joyful, unique, relevant to the topic and honoring risk taking and play, which results in an unexpected benefit economically. Um, so thanks for sharing. What a nice comment. Thank you for joining in. OK, our next topic. Dear Dr. White, my allergies are driving me crazy. My mom told me to try using a neti pot to rinse my nose. That sounds intense. Do you recommend it? Thanks for the help, Sneezy. So as you all have probably noticed, the cherry blossoms are blooming, spring is upon us in Portland, and it will only be a matter of time until most of us, or many of us, are itching and dripping and sneezing. In the age of COVID, when every little symptom has us running for drive-through testing, it's likely we will be especially aware of our allergies this year. And for some, nasal rinses are a tried and true solution to their spring allergies. Of course, all of us have read the horror stories of infections caused by neti pot use, and care should be taken to use clean and sterile water. So how do these nasal saline rinses potentially work? So the thought process is that by rinsing with nasal saline, you can thin and clear mucus in the nasal passages, remove airborne allergens and inflammatory mediators, and there's some thought that it even improves ciliary beat function. So then further kind of clearing out the nasal passages. But what does the data say? So I promise this is the last Cochrane review of the day, um, but they also beat me to the punch on this one. So this is a 2018 Cochrane review. They identified seven studies that they thought were valuable for this. Um, and they, one thing I wanna note before I kind of get into the data is that they calculated a standardized mean difference for their results. So these, these papers had a fair amount of heterogeneity. They had different ways of reporting their data. And so, they use this standardized mean difference to, to kind of standardize the results. So for our first outcome, they looked at whether nasal saline rinses compared to no treatment in patients who weren't using other treatments. So they're just doing nasal saline rinses for their allergies, whether that could help with their symptoms. So they only identified two studies. I, as I said before, a fair amount of heterogeneity, 90%, um, but they did calculate a standardized mean difference of negative 2.06 which represents a large effect size favoring nasal saline rinses over no treatment. Um, but again, it should be noted a wide competence interval of negative 3.8 to 0.32. So that's our first take home point. Next up, they thought to gather papers that looked at whether nasal saline um, or that compared nasal saline to steroids in the treatment of allergic rhinitis symptoms. This time they identified three studies Again, fair bit of heterogeneity, 95%. Uh, this time they calculated a standardized mean difference of 1.26. This time maybe favoring steroids over nasal saline, but it should be noted this time the confidence interval did cross zero, uh, which was negative 0.92 to 3.43. So not a statistically significant result. And then the final thing they wanted to do is they compared nasal saline to no treatment in a patient who is already using either intranasal steroids or oral antihistamines. So whether using a neti pot on top of those medications would provide any benefit. 
This time they identified two studies, which remarkably had a heterogeneity of 0%, and they calculated a standardized mean difference of 0.32, so potentially favoring no treatment over nasal saline. But again, that confidence interval crossed zero, negative 0 0.85 to 0 0.21. So your take home points. Nasal saline rinses may be better than nothing. If a patient isn't wanting to use nasal steroids, if they aren't wanting to use anything oral, um, then maybe a nitty pot can provide some benefit for them. But for patients who are already using nasal steroids, that may be what they should stick with. And then for patients who are either using nasal steroids or oral antihistamines, again, neti pots aren't going to provide, or, or nasal rinses in general, sorry, I shouldn't use this neti pot, um, aren't necessarily going to add any benefit. Um, and of course, the final thing I just want to say is, is nasal rinsing can be a risky intervention. So it's important to use sterile water because um, this is not, not without risk. So that is Nutty Pots. Any questions on that topic before I move on? All right. We'll yes, going. Dr. White, actually, I can go ahead and interject one question related. Um, is boiled and cooled water adequate to avoid infection or is distilled water necessary? Thoughts on that? So I am by no means an expert on the the infection risk, you know, how to mitigate that. But I, I do believe that is OK. But I, you know, I think the recommendation is to use distilled water. So being as safe as possible is probably good. Um, I know we have various things just in our water supply here in Portland um, that you might not want in your nasal passages. Great question. OK, so next up. Dear Dr. White, I keep getting cramps after I use my new Peloton. Do you have any ways to prevent them? They really hurt. Thanks for the help. Ouchie the millennial. So sorry, these names are really bad. I, uh, I'm too corny. Okay, so for many of us, 2020 became the year of the home workout. And for a lucky few, the year of the Peloton. So I don't own a Peloton, I'm not endorsed by Peloton, um, but I have been um, amused because I have about 10 friends who decided this was the year they could no longer live without this expensive stationary bicycle. And as you may know, when folks exercise vigorously um, on their Peloton or off their Peloton, um, they can sometimes develop muscle cramping afterward. The etiology is often idiopathic, but is thought to some maybe be related to inadequate salt replacement. In, in some instance. So let's talk about pickle juice as a treatment for muscle cramps. So as I just mentioned, cramps are incredibly uncomfortable and the use of pickle juice is commonly kind of recommended by athletic trainers um, as a remedy to this uncomfortable situation. So the proposed mechanism is that pickle juice contains much needed salt and electrolytes to folks who've been exercising. So they're hypohydrated and that it can kind of prevent cramps that way or, or fix cramps that way. So let's see what the data says. So for this, I don't have a lot of data. I have a small study for you, but it's kind of a fun study. So this study was of uh, 12 healthy males and they sought to evaluate whether pickle juice could alleviate an electrically induced muscle cramp. So they enrolled these 12 healthy males that had a history of leg cramps. On day one of the study, they attempted to induce a muscle cramp in their legs. So two of them actually got excluded on day one because they couldn't induce a muscle cramp. 
They also had initially excluded anyone with leg injury, prior leg surgery, neurologic disease, cardiovascular disease, and hematologic disorders. Okay, but once they had their group, the group was blinded to the research aim and they attempted to blind them to the beverage, which I will get into later. And then they exercised them for, or the males exercised themselves, excuse me, for two hours at 105 degrees Fahrenheit until they were sufficiently hypohydrated. So they defined being hypohydrated as losing 3% of your body weight. And then what they did to these poor dehydrated men is they attempted to induce a cramp in their flexus halicis, flexor halicis brevis, excuse me. So they used an electrical stimuli to induce a cramp. And so again, these poor men then had cramps um, and in the pickle juice group and in the deionized water group, the cramps lasted about 150 seconds. So two and a half minutes of cramping for each. Okay, and then what they did is they had the men clamp their nose so that they wouldn't, and the, the investigators clamped their nose too. So everybody was supposed to be attempted to be blinded to the drink that they were gonna drink. And then what they did is they induced another cramp. And while that cramp was sort of starting, they had the men drink their assigned drink. And then they measured the duration of that cramp. And so in the pickle juice group, the cramp stopped after 84 seconds versus in the deionized water group, the cramp stopped after 133 seconds. So kind of interesting. So that's what I have on that topic. Very little data, but kind of a fun study. Um, in this study, they were able to shorten or sort of stop the cramp duration by ingesting pickle juice. Um, I think that this in my mind doesn't necessarily answer the question of will pickle juice prevent cramps an hour later or two hours later, you know, this is more of maybe a reflex. And that's that's what the authors talked about is this is maybe more of a reflex inhibition of this cramp versus maybe electrolyte inhibition um, or replenishing electrolytes. So I think definitely more pickle juice studies are needed um, to really figure out if this home remedy is, is for us. Okay, that's that one. Maybe I'll keep going and go on to warts. Okay, so dear Dr. White, I have a wart on my shoulder. With the warmer weather coming, I'm embarrassed by this thing. Can you help? Thanks for the advice, Veruca Vulgaris. Okay, so I was thinking about duct tape and it feels like it's pretty easy to tie duct tape into the pandemic theme, right? I mean, you're stuck at home, you need to fix something. Duct tape is sort of like the fix-all. You know, your chair's broken, duct tape. Whatever issue you have, duct tape. So why not cure your warts with duct tape? That seems like a reasonable thing to do. So duct tape is proposed as an alternative therapy to normal frontline therapies. So as you know, cryotherapy is a sort of standard first-line therapy for warts. It requires numerous office visits. It can be uncomfortable. You know, sometimes folks have to come back to the office for up to six times and they come every couple of weeks. It's, it's very time consuming. And then another option is salicylic acid, which can be sort of labor intensive, maybe a little messy, kind of annoying for patients. So duct tape is proposed as, as sort of another option, something else that might be a little easier. So 
This is proposed as a treatment for common plantar and flat warts. It works through, um, well, the proposed mechanism, I should say, is through stimulation of the immune system. So the thought is that the duct tape kind of creates this macerating and keratolytic environment, that's a quote, uh, that then sort of turns on the immune system and helps it fight off the virus. And so that's sort of the thought process. This, as a, as a fix, was proposed first in 1978 in a paper, sort of thought piece that I like the title of, it's called Don't Excise, Exorcise. And since that time, there have been three randomized controlled trials that I will uh, talk with you about today. Sure, that's all you ever wanted. And the one other thing I wanted to mention is that it should be noted that a 2002 review in the British Medical Journal uh, reported that 30% of warts actually probably disappear on their own with placebo treatment. So just a little food for thought on that one. Okay, so our first paper. So this paper was a prospective randomized controlled trial that evaluated duct tape versus cryotherapy for the treatment of warts. This was a single center study of 61 pediatric patients. They excluded patients with warts on the face, genital warts, and periungal warts, and they used computer-generated randomization to assign the individuals to either cryotherapy or duct tape treatment. So in the duct tape group, the duct tape was cut to the size of the wart, the wart was covered, and then it was left on for six days. On the seventh day, the duct tape was removed, the wart was soaked, debrided, left open overnight, and then the duct tape was reapplied the following day. In the cryotherapy group, they were asked to come into the clinic every two to three weeks for 10 seconds of cryotherapy for a maximum of six treatments. So what did they find? So actually in this paper, the spoilers that duct tape was found to be superior to cryotherapy, interestingly. So I wanna tell you first 10 patients were lost to follow-up. So we were left with 51 patients. So that's why the numbers add up to 51. Their primary outcome was gauged by nursing personnel who were blinded to the intervention and they gauged wart resolution. So the primary outcome was wart resolution at two months. So in the duct tape group, 22 of the 26 patients had had resolution of their primary wart, whereas in the cryotherapy group, 15 of the 25 had had resolution of their primary wart. The investigators used a chi-squared test to determine that this result was statistically significant. Of note, the time to resolution of most of the warts was about one month in the duct tape group, and then two weeks in the cryotherapy group. Some limitations that patients were not blinded to their intervention. Okay, so the next paper I have for you, this time is a randomized controlled trial of duct tape versus a corn pad, again in a pediatric population with warts. So this time the, stu the study was set in three schools they enrolled 103 pediatric patients. Uh, that population was calculated to detect, so they, they enrolled that many to detect a, a difference of 30% in wart reduction with an 80% power based on that premise that 30% of warts disappear after 10 weeks with placebo. So they excluded again folks with genital and facial warts 
and they used block randomization this time to assign folks to either duct tape or a corn pad. Okay, so if any of you guys are wondering what a corn pad is, that is a corn pad. And again, for the intervention here, so in the duct tape group, this was similar to the prior study in that they left the tape on for about a week. Tape was, uh, tape was removed, the ward was cleaned and debrided, and, um, and duct tape was reapplied. This time, this, the same thing basically was done in the corn pad group. They had a similar kind of weekly changing of the cord pad. The intervention this time lasted for six weeks. Okay, but this time, the wart resolution was not significantly different between the two groups. And so I should tell you the wart resolution was measured by a blinded doctor. So that's kind of the, the only blinding they had in the study, really. And the outcomes, the primary outcome, again, was resolution of that primary wart. So in the duct tape group, only eight kids had resolution of their wart, which is interesting because that's less than 20% of the group. And then in the corn pad group, it was three out of 52. And this was not uh, statistically, these two numbers were not statistically different. Some limitations of this study that I found interesting. Now, first off, the duct tape they were using this group was not silver duct tape, it was clear duct tape, which I found uh, notable. And that clear duct tape fell off frequently. So seven of the patients, or seven of the subjects in the duct tape group actually stopped using the duct tape altogether not that long into the study because it wouldn't stick. And then, as I said before, the only person blinded was the, the doctor. Okay, so that's study number two, a little bit more of a negative study, less hopeful for the duct tape intervention. And then finally, we have our third randomized controlled trial about duct tape. This is a placebo-controlled trial, so they use moleskin as their placebo. Okay, so this is a single-center study, finally, of adult patients, 90 of them. And they excluded genital warts again uh, and randomized folks to either moleskin or duct tape using computer-generated randomization. For reference, this is a mole. And so I should tell you the duct tape was applied similarly to the prior two studies, so I won't get into that, but they did put moleskin on top of the duct tape. And then for the other patients, they just had moleskin. So in that way, they were a little bit blinded to what was on there covering their wart. Okay. So another um, sort of take home point here, there was no difference in the wart resolution between the duct tape group and the moleskin group. So again, their primary resolution, primary outcome was resolution of this wart, and there was no difference. Eight out of 39 patients in the duct tape group had resolution of their primary wart, whereas nine out of 41 in the moleskin group had resolution of their primary wart. Again, about 20% of the group, so interestingly less than that placebo number we were quoting before. They also noted that older warts were less likely to go away, so just kind of an interesting thing they noted, with an odds ratio of 0.97. The other thing, um, again, is that they used this clear duct tape, and so that's just notable, and it brings me kind of to this point, which I just loved. This paper was by Dr. Sam Laska, who is a dermatologist somewhere in the, kind of the middle of the U.S., and he wrote this correspondence article entitled D Clear Duct Tape is Not Duct Tape. And I just love this because he goes into talking about the differences between how silver duct tape has rubber components and has things in it that 
that maybe could be more efficacious for wart treatment, whereas this clear duct tape doesn't contain those things. And so that's sort of was his thought process about why these two papers were negative studies. So kind of your take home on this, the duct tape topic is duct tape is unfortunately not a proven solution at this time. We have three randomized controlled trials. That first trial in a pediatric population was very impressive. Uh, and showed duct tape to be maybe better than cryotherapy, but that was not able to be repeated in the two subsequent studies. But it should be noted the two subsequent studies use this fake clear duct tape. Um, so that begs a question in my mind. The other thing to remember is that duct tapes are pretty low risk, low cost intervention. So if a patient can't come in for cryotherapy or they can't afford it and they can't do um, salicylic acid for whatever reason, maybe this is something still to think about. Um, so that is duct tape. I'm just gonna grab water, sorry. Okay, moving on to our next topic. Dear Dr. White, I've been really constipated lately. I think it might be because I'm working from home and so I move around less. I don't really wanna go to the store because I'm afraid of the virus, but I have some prunes here at home. Would you recommend I use prunes for my constipation? Thanks for the advice, all blocked up. Okay, so before I dive into the data, I wanna talk a little bit about how we, uh, how prunes are proposed to work. So prunes are a pretty cool intervention, actually. I used to think that prunes were just sort of like fiber. You eat a bunch of prunes, you know, it's kind of like having a bunch of celery, but it's way more than that. Um, so it's pretty cool. So prunes, um, have contained sorbitol and phenolic, phenolic compounds, excuse me, that can increase stool bulk, but it also, uh, they also contain pectin, which can increase bacterial proliferation in the colon, which can increase stool weight. And then they contain sorbitol, hemicellulose, and cellulose, which are all osmotic agents pulling water into the colon. And then finally, it contains this chlorogenic acid that can stimulate a certain type of bacteria that can actually have a laxative effect. So definitely a multimodal form of constipation treatment. So pretty cool. So in terms of the data, what does it show us? So the only paper I have for you on this topic is a 2011 randomized clinical trial. So I should say there were about four or five studies that I found that evaluated prunes, but only one of them evaluated prunes in constipated patients. So I wanted a population that was already constipated and these folks were really constipated. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the, the study population. So this was 40 adults, as I said, age 18 to 75, and they were constipated greater than 25% of their lives. And these folks, these poor folks, we're having complete spontaneous bowel movements 1.7 times per week. And they also, this is notable, I thought, seven patients actually reported missing one hour of work per week due to constipation. So they did exclude folks who had any irritable bowel syndrome, alarm signs of colorectal cancer, cardiovascular disease, in-stage renal disease, any history of GI surgery, neurologic diseases, hemorrhoids, or pelvic floor dysfunction. The study was powered um, to detect a difference of one complete spontaneous bowel movement per week with 80% power. Okay, so their intervention. 
So they asked, they randomized their group, half their group, to receive 12 prunes BID, or they asked them to eat 12 prunes twice a day. So a total of 24 prunes per day. And then the other group was instructed to drink 11 grams of psyllium in water twice a day. The intervention itself lasted for three weeks. So the way they did this is they had a one week washout period where individuals in the trial were asked to not consume any stool softeners or anything for constipation. And then they had a three week intervention during which time they were instructed to take these, these interventions. And then a one week washout period actually a crossover study. So then they switched groups and did the other intervention. They were allowed to use bisicodal suppositories as needed if they had not had a bowel movement for more than three days. But I will note not many of the subjects, I think it was one or two folks used the, the bisicodal suppositories. Okay, so your outcome or our outcome. Prunes were actually superior to psyllium in their outcomes. So Outcomes were tracked with daily diary entries. So the patient or the individuals were asked to write down, you know, how many bowel movements they have, complete bowel movements, partial bowel movements, were they spontaneous, all sorts of details about their bowel movements. And then they were also asked to rate their constipation symptoms. So they rated these symptoms on a seven point Likert scale compared to their baseline symptoms. So zero was gonna be no better than baseline, three, a positive three was going to be markedly better than their baseline and negative three markedly worse. This data was then collated and evaluated by blinded reviewers. So with regard to their primary outcome, so their primary outcome was complete spontaneous bowel movements. So as I had said, at baseline, the folks in both these groups on average were having 1.7 bowel movements per week. In the prunes group, that increased to 3.5 complete spontaneous bowel movements per, group, per week versus 2.8 in the psyllium group, which was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.006. With regard to the secondary outcomes, so as I said, they were asking folks to rate their constipation symptoms. So in the prunes group, the average symptom rating was 1.7 after the intervention. So they rated their symptoms sort of moderately better than they had been at baseline. In the psyllium group, that number was slightly lower, but still sort of in that moderately better category, um, 1.3, and that was not statistically significant, um, statistically different, but both were improved from baseline. And then the taste of the intervention was also rated. So they were asked, you know, prunes and psyllium, do they both taste okay? And both um, were, were said by the individuals to taste okay. Then they were also asked to record if they had any symptoms of early satiety, fullness, or bloating that would sort of signify an adverse uh, reaction to the, the supplements. And there wasn't any sort of significant data there. And then they also were asked to rate their straining. And there was no difference between the prunes and the psyllium group, um, but they were both improved from baseline. Their straining scores were slightly better than they had been at baseline. So our take home here. A prune a day keeps the constipation at bay. That is the take home I want you to take there. So prunes are interesting. They can help with constipation in a variety of ways. It's not only a fiber, it can be osmotic, it can be bulking, and even can be sort of a, a laxative or motility type agent. It is important to note, you will need to eat a lot of prunes to have this effect. So 
Folks in the study were asked to eat 24 prunes per day, which comes out to 550 calories. So it is not a low calorie intervention. The other thing to remember is that prunes do have potassium in them. So for our folks living with end-stage renal disease, this probably isn't a good intervention for them. Okay, so that is prunes. And we will move on to our final topic. Here we go. Dear Dr. White, this has been a really hard year. I'm so isolated and the constant stress of the pandemic has taken a toll on my mental health. I'm so depressed and I don't enjoy anything I used to love. I haven't had a good experience with antidepressant medications in the past. And I was curious about psilocybin as a treatment. I remember it was on the ballot last fall. Can you now treat me with psilocybin? Thanks for the advice, a currently not so fun guy. Okay, so um, we are gonna dive in now to uh, using psilocybin for the treatment of anxiety and depression. I think it's not super hard to tie the topic of, of depression and anxiety into a talk about the pandemic year. Um, it's been, I think, a really, really hard year for our patients and for people in the world in general. And I know uh, for a lot of us, we've seen a huge uptick in the amount of patients, the number of patients we are now seeing for, for visits, for anxiety and depression. Um, so it's an interesting time to think about other options. As a disclaimer, um, I'm all into disclaimers in this talk. As a disclaimer, I do wanna say that, you know, psychedelics is a huge topic. And I am um, by no means gonna be giving an in-depth primer on this in the next 20 minutes. But I did want to um, at least talk a little bit about it. So this is a bit of a can of worms. And if you're more interested, I, I suggest you, you dive in. I definitely became interested in this because of my own skepticism about the topic. And I have, I've really learned a lot. So it's quite interesting. So those of you in the audience with more life experience than I uh, will probably know more about this history than I will. So I will do my best not to embarrass myself. Uh, with my office on the topic, but this, the history of psychedelics is long. Long predates Western culture and um, psychedelics entered the sort of the consciousness um, of America probably around the 1950s. And so in the 1950s and 1960s, there was actually a great deal of sort of interest and excitement about psychedelic substances. Um, some of you may remember the cover of Life magazine. They talked about mushrooms and, and the cover of McLean's that had that article titled My 12 Hours as a Madman about a psychedelic trip. Um, some of you may remember the names Al Hubbard, Albert Hoffman, Timothy Leary, who all were very, very excited about psychedelics and, and wanted to kind of spread their, spread their word. And some of you may remember the studies that were part of the Harvard Psilocybin Project that ended up getting shut down and um, maybe didn't have a great legacy. Some of you may also remember MKUltra, which was a CIA project that sought to investigate psychedelic substances as a way um, to, to quote unquote control minds. Um, so that was the 1950s and 60s. And then in 1970, psilocybin became illegal. So psilocybin was made a schedule one drug, which deemed it to have high potential for abuse and no potential for medical treatment. So for a while, things were maybe a little quiet. And then in the 2000s, the FDA granted 
an opportunity for certain institutions to start researching whether psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, could be used for therapeutic purposes. Okay, so I do want to set the stage a little bit more. So I'm not talking about LSD here. So when we talk about psychedelics, there are multiple types of psychedelic, and I'm only going to talk to you about psilocybin. So LSD is a compound synthesized in the lab. Psilocybin is a compound naturally occurring in certain mushrooms. One more thing, another disclaimer, is that I'm not going to tell you what a psilocybin mushroom looks like, because my understanding from all the reading I've done in preparation for this talk is that it's very difficult to accurately identify a psilocybin mushroom. And my goal here is not for you to go out and look for mushrooms after this talk, because I would worry that there are many mushrooms that are poisonous and I don't wanna cause you any harm. I will say the place where these psilocybin mushrooms grows best actually is just in our backyard along the Columbia River. So this is sort of a, a local delicacy. So a little more about psilocybin. So psilocybin in the mushroom, once ingested into the body, is converted to psilocin. Psilocin is structurally similar to serotonin, so it acts as an agonist at serotonin receptors. Effects last about three to six hours, and when psilocybin is ingested, it should be done in a controlled environment. And I will talk a little bit more about, after I get into the data about surrounding psilocybin treatment for depression, I will talk a little bit more about how psilocybin legalization is going to go in Oregon. Okay, so a little more background. Do not read this slide, but I did want to throw this up here just to tell you there's a, there's a lot of data um, and a lot of papers about this topic. And there were a number of papers that predate the ones that I'm going to talk about that, that looked at psilocybin to look at just is it safe to use in, in humans and, and kind of what effect does it have on human behavior? And, and there was some thought that psilocybin actually can change behavior and cognition um, for the better. And so that's kind of was the premise for these two studies that I'm going to talk with you about today that both looked at using psilocybin to treat anxiety and depression. Okay. So here's our first study. So this was a randomized, blinded, controlled crossover study that evaluated a treatment of psilocybin for depression, so a single treatment of psilocybin in cancer patients. So the thought with these folks was folks with life-threatening or terminal cancer maybe don't have time to wait for an SSRI to take effect. And so maybe it, it would be helpful to give them something that can have more of a an immediate effect um, to treat their depression. So they enrolled 29 patients with life-threatening cancer that was complicated by anxiety and depression at this single center NYU in New York. Folks were randomized to receive either a single dose of psilocybin, so they received 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of psilocybin, or the control or placebo was um, 250 milligrams of niacin. So dosages were given in a safe, supportive setting. As I said before, that's an important part of the intervention. The most common adverse events were headaches. 30% of folks actually had headaches, nausea in 14%, anxiety in 17%, and then 7% actually had transient psychotic-like symptoms. So there was one case of transient paranoid ideation and one case of a transient thought disorder, but both were transient. And then 
Um, it should be noted that patients were screened for depression prior to the intervention with um, scoring systems. So they used the HADS depression and anxiety scale and then the Beck depression inventory to score their depression prior to the intervention. And then they scored them one day after, two weeks after, and seven weeks after the intervention, after that single psilocybin session and dose. Okay, so their findings. So this single treatment was psilocybin induced in antidepressant response. So um, I'm not gonna get into some of all the different scoring because I'm gonna get into that with the next paper, but there, the take home here is that seven weeks, 83% of the folks who had taken one dose of psilocybin in a supported environment had an antidepressant response versus 14% in the niacin group. There were some limits to generalizability of this study. It was a small sample size. It was a very homogenous group. They were predominantly Caucasian. They were all cancer patients. Um, and the other thing to note is just blinding with psilocybin is really hard. Um, there aren't, there's a, it's a little bit hard to sort of have a, a convincing placebo that um, that is also, you know, psychedelic. So niacin is sort of thought to be maybe helpful in that it, it induces this sort of funny response. So kind of an interesting result and begs the question, would this be helpful for patients with moderate to severe depression, maybe who aren't cancer patients? So that takes us to our next paper. So this is um, the final paper I'll talk to you about today. This is a randomized waiting list controlled trial of psilocybin for major depression. So this was published in 2020, uh, in November 2020, very timely, uh, in, the, in JAMA Psychiatry. So they enrolled 27 patients who were aged 21 to 75 with major depression. This was again a single center study. So this was done at Johns Hopkins. They excluded folks who had uncontrolled cardiovascular disease, a personal or family history of psychosis or bipolar disorder, pregnant or nursing mothers, and those with alcohol use disorder or ongoing use of hallucinogens. Folks were randomized to either the waiting list or immediate treatment using urn randomization. Okay, so a little bit about the, the group that they studied. So this group again was maybe a little homogenous. It was predominantly college educated. They were predominantly white. Um, they did have across the two groups, the average age was about 40. The delayed treatment group was slightly younger at 35. And then they had all had depression for quite some time, about 23 years in the immediate treatment group and 19 years in the delayed treatment group. And then the other thing I wanna tell you is their baseline depression score was 22.8 on the GRID-HAM um, scoring system. So that indicates moderate, almost severe depression. Okay, so with regard to the intervention, so what they did with these groups is they, as I said, they randomized them to either waiting list or immediate treatment. The intervention lasted eight weeks and they had 18 in-person visits. So both groups had a variety of visits. So the waiting list group would have phone calls, they'd screen them for depression, they'd check in on them, and then the psilocybin group maybe had more in-person visits. So with regard to the intervention, they had these two day-long psilocybin administration sessions that were in a supportive setting. The first time they received 20 milligrams of psilocybin, the second time 30 milligrams. Okay, and I found this graphic a little bit helpful to kind of understand their timeline. So at the bottom, you have the delayed treatment group, and this was another crossover study. And then the top, you have the immediate treatment group. And so in the immediate treatment group, they had their first psilocybin sessions, their two psilocybin sessions, excuse me, at weeks three and four. And then they screened them for depression at weeks five and eight. 
both groups had depression screening scores at weeks five and eight. And then following that, the delayed treatment group sort of entered treatment. And that was the whole premise for the study. The delayed treatment group was thought they were about to get the treatment at any time. So that was sort of controlling for a, an anticipatory effect or an, an anticipatory benefit. So as I mentioned briefly before, they scored their depression using the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. So this, the grid hammed, is a 17-point questionnaire. It's pretty thorough, um, and it's 30-point scale. So less than seven indicates no depression. Eight to 16 is mild depression. Seven to 17 to 23 is moderate depression, and then 24 and higher is severe depression. So this scoring was done by blinded clinicians, and I kind of already said at baseline week five and eight. And then a clinically significant response was deemed to be a, a decrease of 50% or greater from baseline. So here's what they found. So up at the top in the blue, you can see the scoring for the delayed treatment group. So you can see their depression scores kind of hang out in the 23-24 range. So that moderate, almost severe depression. And then in the immediate treatment group, their baseline is the same up in the 23 range. And then at week five, so that's a week after that second psilocybin session, their depression scores, their depression scores um, had an average of eight. So that represents um, mild, almost, almost remission. And then that score remained around eight. It went up to 8.5 at week eight. So um, the other thing I want to add is that 14 participants in the trial actually met criteria for complete re remission of their depression. Okay, so the take home point from this paper is that psilocybin in patients with moderate to severe depression can produce an antidepressant response. Um, and that response is persistent for at least four weeks. There are you know, some, again, limitations of this study. It's a fairly homogenous population. There was a small sample size. Um, I think there was some question in my mind, was there more therapy in the psilocybin group? Um, and again, there's always sort of that, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't niacin given to the other group. There's not a great way to have a placebo. And so was there just sort of some therapeutic effect with, with having the experience? But again, I think there's a lot of potential in this therapy. It really, it's really interesting because I, I went into reading about this with a lot of skepticism. And it's, it's a very interesting question whether this can provide some rapid treatment for depression. So that's the data I have for you today. The final thing I wanted to talk about um, briefly is just this ballot measure 109 that we voted on last November. Um, so I, again, was pretty skeptical about this ballot measure, and um, but it's interesting. So their plan is that psilocybin is going to be used in treatment centers um, by people who are other than doctors. So these treatment centers won't necessarily be run by doctors, um, but they will be controlled so or regulated, excuse me. So the plan is that over the next two years, the Oregon Health Authority is going to work with Oregon, the Oregon Psilocybin, Psilocybin Advisory Board and so the psilocybin advisory board is going to advise OHA on studies, research, and they're going to sort of develop requirements and specifications. And then starting in January of 2023, so two years from now, they anticipate that they will start to receive applications to sell, produce, and administer psilocybin. So I think for all of us who are working and practicing in Oregon, this is going to be something that, that needs to be on our radar. It's going to be something that patients are asking about. And so um, I'm hopeful that, that reviewing these two studies with you can at least sort of start to, 
start to give you a little bit of information about um, what patients are talking about when they talk about uh, mushrooms for their depression. Okay, so in summary, what I talked with you about today was six different home remedies that can be used um, potentially for some of your problems. So first off, I talked about cranberry juice as a prevention for UTI. As I said, there was maybe some protective effect, but it was not statistically significant. So cranberry juice at this time cannot be recommended as a, a way to prevent UTI. Then I talked about nasal rinses for allergic rhinitis. And it looked like this intervention was potentially helpful for patients who were not using anything else or didn't want to use anything else. But for folks who are already using intranasal steroids or oral antihistamines, it didn't provide any more benefit. Then for pickle juice, we looked at a, a very small and kind of fun study. Um, and so pickle juice doesn't have a whole lot of data, um, but maybe can, can stop your cramp in the act. And then we talked about duct tape for warts. Again, had a hopeful study um, at the beginning and then two sort of subsequent negative studies. So um, not data supported either, um, but inexpensive and probably fairly safe. Then I talked to you or I presented to you a randomized control trial on uh, prunes for constipation. Prunes are a multimodal modality for constipation and it appears actually more effective than that psyllium that we like to use. And then finally, we reviewed two papers um, that evaluated the use of psilocybin mushrooms, or psilocybin, excuse me, for the treatment of anxiety and depression. Both papers showed a rapid reduction in depression scores um, after psilocybin treatment, and both showed a sustained response for a number of weeks following that treatment. So that is that. And these are the some of the references, some of the things that I read in preparing for this talk. Thank you so much for listening. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. White, for your curiosity um, and for your careful review of the literature. Um, we have just about five minutes, so I'll pull a few questions from the Q&A here. Um, first, just to clarify, um, yes, it does seem fine to boil water for three to five minutes and cool. Um, and somebody went ahead and put in a recipe recommended for how you make your water into saline as well if you don't want to buy the packets. Um, so look in the Q&A for that. Awesome. Um, Thank you guys. Yeah, so a little bit of question here, especially given the heter uh, the different um, findings in the wart duct tape studies. Um, do you have any more information on the technique for the debridement? Particularly whether that was done by medical personnel versus the pediatric patient parents? Um, yes, in the vast majority of studies that was done by the parents at home, so they didn't come in for the debriding. They did that at home. Great, thanks. Let's us know a little more easily reproduced. Um, any problems reported with side effects like dermatitis from the duct tape? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, um, I sort of meant to mention that briefly. Then in all of the studies, there were a number of, of patients who, you know, kids and whatnot who had some irritation and, and so some of them couldn't continue using it, but that was not all. Um, and it was sort of limited to, to localized reactions predominantly. Great. Um, and I know you didn't um, study this topic specifically, but we were impressed with your prunes, though a little worried about the calories and potassium. Um, there's been a couple comments about any knowledge of using sriracha for constipation. This must be coming through as a patient recommendation. No, but I love that. 
<laughs> I do too. OK, stay tuned. Um, we'll have to look at evidence for Sriracha. Um, and then a couple of comments here. Um, maybe that I'll just read off while I wait to see if we have any final question. So um, just so one one comment notes um, shockingly little data on psilocybin with not very many patients nor placebo controlled um, and and obviously um, concern for worrisome side effects or potential for um, addiction or abuse. Um, not sure if you have any further comments there, Dr. Wedding, probably more study to come. Thanks for the, the warm up on this. Yeah, I think it's definitely very interesting. I, um, as I said before, I sort of approach this skeptically, and I think there's some limitations for sure with those studies, especially with the blinding um, or with the lack of placebo control. And yeah, the first study did note, you know, especially that transient sort of thought disorders that were noted are definitely concerning. Um, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of other papers, but again, I, I don't think that they're, it's difficult. I think it's a difficult thing to study. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. Provoking. Absolutely. Stay tuned. Um, so I'll leave with um, one comment here, educational and entertaining grand rounds. Thank you. With an exclamation point. Well done. And then since we have two minutes left, I'll ask one last question again, which you didn't cover, but which many of us have. So feel free to weigh in and we'll sign off on that. Um, have you done any review of melatonin um, in terms of as a sleep aid and particularly whether it helps REM? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I have not, not dived into the melatonin idea, although I am a, a firm believer in melatonin. I think I don't want to know the data. I like my own placebo effect. There you go. Power of placebo for sure. Um, one last comment noting that duct tape and debridement is actually two different interventions um, for warts. So thank you for that. Um, and I do know also that there is a technique sometimes using the duct tape over the salicylic acid. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of practical information. Again, I think for many of us, um, listening to your patients, gaining curiosity, taking the time to form clinical questions and look to the literature. Um, Great role modeling for all of us. So thanks, Dr. White. Thanks for, for having me. Tune in next week, everybody, for our Claven lectureship. See you next week. <laughs>